Well, good morning, and it's a, a joy for me to be back at um, in Second Corinthians. I think uh, we have a real feast before us of this next section of Second Corinthians. Um, but first, we got to understand what it's saying. The passage that we're beginning today is in Second Corinthians six fourteen. To seven one. Six fourteen is where we begin, and this is one section clearly all belonging together. But we're going to spend more than one week on this section. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And that's a, uh, a Hebrew word that uh, it was used for Satan. It just means wicked or the wicked one. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As Christ said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So, uh, what this says isn't that difficult or that strange, but where it says it is very strange indeed. Remember from last week, Paul has been exhorting the Corinthians to open their hearts to him just as he has opened his heart to them. And then all of a sudden, he's talking about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. And it's clear he didn't just change the subject and move on to something different because right after this passage in 7.2, he continues what he was saying before this passage. In 7.2 it says, make room in your hearts for us. He goes back to the same subject. So somehow... 614 to 71 is related to what's before it and what's after it. But we're left trying to figure out how. How is it related? How is he continuing the same thought as opposed to just changing the subject? I think in order to understand this, we need to go back and refresh our memory about what this letter is all about. The big picture going on in Second Corinthians. We need to remember that there, are, there were opponents of Paul within the, within the Corinthian community. These are not people who were part of the congregation when Paul was there, but who came after he left 
and they opposed Paul and tried to undermine Paul to the congregation. Now, who were these people? We've talked a lot about them. We're not going to go into all the detail we've seen before. But are they, just answer this, we'll just answer this question. Are they believers who just have an attitude problem toward Paul? Or are they snakes, wolves in sheep's clothing? They are clearly snakes. And let me give you three ways that we know that. The first is that in Paul's letter written to the congregation, he never appeals to these people. He never reaches out to them. He knows what they're made of. He reaches out to the congregation, the ones that he ministered to. He doesn't reach out to these men at all. Second of all, he says some very strong things against them. For instance, in chapter 11, verse 4, Paul is rebuking the Corinthian Christians for their tolerance of these men. And this is what he says. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, if, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted from us, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, he is saying that these men have brought them a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And then, thirdly, in that same chapter, 11, in verses 13 to 15, Paul further describes these men in these words. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Those aren't the words that you use to describe brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe just have an attitude problem. False apostles, deceitful workmen, counterfeit apostles, servants of Satan hell-bound. That means, this all means that in Paul's mind, these people were not legitimately part of the Corinthian church and congregation. They were not the same as the Christians who had come to Christ under Paul's gospel ministry and had been nurtured and instructed by Paul for his year and a half time with them. They were a band of phony super apostles, which he calls them elsewhere, who were feeding the congregation lies about Paul and lies about Christ. The congregation, you see, had been falling prey to these lies. And Paul is desperately trying to get them to stop listening to these people and stop associating with these people and stop being a part of these people. And one of the main purposes of this letter of Paul 
is to get the Corinthian believers to stop listening to and cooperating with these guys. He is trying to help them see that they don't belong together. He's trying to split the two groups apart to separate the congregation, to disentangle them from these false apostles. He's trying to convince the believers to go back to listening to him and stop listening to the bad guys. So, in the middle of his appeal to open their hearts toward him, Paul suddenly says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What could he be talking about except the false apostles who have been poisoning the congregation? In other words, Paul here is saying, open your hearts to us, but close your hearts to those infiltrators who are feeding you lies. These Judaizers, these unbelievers, these people of darkness and of the devil, these idolaters, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? It actually makes a lot of sense. Paul moves from appealing to the Corinthians to open their hearts toward him to urging them to close their hearts to the liars who have come to Corinth. Now, in light of this, let's think about this first command. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers and the things that follow. You know that in the law of Moses that we find the first, not really not in Genesis, but uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the those books of the first five books, that there was a number of strange laws. And one of those strange laws we find in Deuteronomy 22.10. The law says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You know, when they would plow, they would often yoke two animals together to pull the, and then they'd attach the the plow to the yoke and those two animals would power the plow to dig up the ground. Well, um, this may not seem strange to those of us who are ignorant about farming, but it's a very strange law to anyone who's familiar with farming because farmers know that you would never try to yoke an ox and a donkey together. No one would ever do that because they don't operate on the same um, pattern, the same beat, the same walking rhythm. And you have to if you're yoked together. So that's the first strange thing about this law. 
But there's another strange thing about this law. Why would God care? Why would God command something so trivial? You know, that's do not wear socks that don't match. Why would God care? You know, what is the big deal? Why does he care about what kind of animals that you use when you're plowing your fields? Well, the fact is God doesn't really care about yoking animals together. He gave this law to teach his people something about how to live. You can see this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 8 to 10, where Paul is discussing another law of Moses, the law which says that you should not muzzle an ox while he is treading out the grain. And there, which is in Deuteronomy 25, 4, and there when he's discussing that law, he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not rather command for our sake? Is this working okay? Yes, it was written for our sake. And he goes on to say that it instructs us about paying leaders in the church for their work. But the point is, the law about about not muzzling an ox isn't because God's so concerned about the ox. It's because he's giving us a principle of how to deal with other people. In the same way, God gives us the law about not yoking an ox and a donkey together, not because he cares about the oxes and the oxen and the donkeys, but because he's trying to teach us something about the way that we live. And in particular, he's trying to teach the people of Israel not to try to join forces with the Canaanites. And this was their perpetual problem, was it not? The people of Israel, when they moved into Canaan, they kept... They kept linking up with their pagan neighbors. And what did God say? He said, if you start, he wouldn't let them intermarry. Remember why? Because if you do that, you're going to start being influenced by them. You're going to start worshiping their gods. They're going to start winning you away from me. So keep separate from them. This is why in the first place when they went in, they were supposed to get rid of them all. And they didn't. And this was... I think it's even called a perpetual stumbling block to the people of Israel, to this toleration of and association with and linking up, yoking themselves with unbelievers, with pagans in their land. And in the same way now, the law about not yoking oxen and donkeys is about us. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's the point of the law. And that's how Paul applies it here. These Corinthians were linking up with some folks who were bad news. Who had allowed themselves, they had allowed themselves to be yoked to men with whom they as Christians could not walk in lockstep. You are Christian people. Don't try to walk in step with people who ultimately are opposed to Christ. All they will do is trip you up. 
What is being forbidden by Paul here is not our normal interactions with unbelievers, which give opportunity for ministry through love and evangelism and modeling of hope. Paul, rather, is forbidding the Christian from marching through life with someone who is not walking in the footsteps of Christ. So, if that's what this passage means, now we're ready to ask, what does it mean to us? How, what are ways that this applies to us? Well, first of all, some people, by nature, are gullible and easily duped. Other people are ever suspicious. But God doesn't want either of these. I think we all know people that we would say are like this or that. I would say God doesn't want either of these. The issue isn't whether you're open-minded or closed-minded or open-hearted or close-hearted. The issue is being open-hearted toward godly sources of truth and being close-hearted towards lies, God, ungodly sources of lies. Of course, there are many voices that are competing for our attention. Some of them represent the voice of God. But there are also things being said to us which are designed not to teach us or help us, but to trip us up. There are lies being told. And just as the truth sets you free, so lies put you in bondage. You know, in the book of Proverbs, especially in verse chapters 8 and 9, and I would urge you to go there and read these chapters, there are two women. One's called wisdom, and one's called folly. And these two women are both out in the streets calling people, trying to get them to come to them. And here is the exact thing what we're talking we're talking about this morning. There are two voices. There are two uh, worldviews. There are two kinds of people that that are anxious to come alongside and and have an impact in your life. And we have to learn that you cannot maintain a, f- a close friendship with someone who's trying to seduce you away from Christ. After the description of the woman folly and her attempts to win people to herself, it goes on to say of the man who would believe her and go into her house, he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. That's 9.18, Proverbs 9.18. You see the woman Folly, she's broadcasting herself and advertising herself as the one who's going to give you happiness. And yet, ultimately, she gives you death. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't link up with people who are just poisoning you. 
This passage is about divorcing ourselves from dangerous entanglements. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean unfriending your non-Christian friends. How many, how many, it's amazing how many people become Christians because their friends become Christians and then tell them about Christ. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Paul even makes this point himself in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. But that doesn't mean that there are not connections in believers' lives that need to be severed. Specifically here, we see that Paul wants them to sever their connection to these false teachers, these pretend apostles. Those who claim to speak for God, but only speak lies. He says in verse 17, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. There is a time when you need to walk away from a person or from a group of people. There's a time when you have to break up with a loved one. Not because you don't love them anymore, but because you don't belong together. There's a time when you must cut off someone whom you have been very close to because trying to walk together is causing you to stumble. Now your old friends may resent you for this, for abandoning them. And Peter in 1 Peter 4.4 even talks about how your old friends may be surprised when you don't join with them in their activities anymore and insult you for it. They may accuse you of acting like you're better than everybody else. They may say you've been brainwashed. They may say you're just going through a phase. But you must not listen to them. This is why it's a little scary when we send a young person off to college because they're so often alone there in a new and completely new environment and surrounded by peers and taught by professors who would love nothing more than to convert a Christian away from Christ. And this is why we're so anxious for Christian college students to get involved in a church and in Christian organizations where they can have an alternative voice just different than the one of their peers and the professors. There is a strong temptation when we're faced with this to negotiate a middle ground. There's a strong temptation to try to find common ground with those who are lying instead of cutting ourselves off from them. It sounds so loving and so humble, especially today in our present environment. And yet it can be so dangerous. And we see that in this passage. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? How can you put these two together? How can you negotiate an agreement between righteousness and wickedness? It it doesn't matter how good you are at peacemaking. You can't wed these two together. The two cannot become one. Or they cease or it ceases being righteousness. What fellowship has light with darkness? 
What accord has Christ with the devil? I'm not saying that there's no sense in which it's inappropriate to look for common ground. You and your dentist hopefully have common ground in your interest in your dental health. And you and your neighbors in your neighborhood have common interest in the removal of the trash on time and affordably and that kind of thing. There's all sorts of ways that we have things in common. But in the truly important ways, we have no common interest with a spirit that opposes Christ And it can be dangerous to look for a common ground. Why? Because you may find some common ground which isn't actually there. And you may find yourself compromising the truth in order to enjoy the favor of the world. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That means being an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a big fancy word that uh, some of you don't know that I want to teach you. It's the word syncretism. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M, syncretism. It's a word that describes, at least used in the Christian context, the attempts to mix Christianity with other things. So, for instance, when Christianity comes into a culture like in Haiti, where there's a lot of voodoo, There's a certain brand of Christianity that that becomes mixed with that voodoo and it's like a voodoo Christianity. In Cameroon, where some of our dear friends are from, they have this problem with animism where that was what was there before and now they have Christianity mixed with animism. Probably some in Kenya as well, I'm sure. And so this, you know, we hear about this and we say, oh, that's bad. You shouldn't, that's, that's wrong, that's polluted, that's, you should never do that. But the fact is, we in America do it too. In fact, talk to Margaret, or talk to Jody, or talk to Fabrice. They'll tell you ways that they see that in America, we mix our Christianity with other things that don't mix with Christianity. In fact, I think that um, this is rife in the church today. Um, I think that, you know, it's, we look at our society and it's saying, instead of saying, you know, this society is opposed to Christ in all these ways, we say, well, let's Let's adapt to our society so that we can speak Christ into our society. But we end up just adapting to the society in so many ways. Like, let me give you for instance. You know, in our society, people don't sit down and listen to someone get up and talk about stuff anymore. That is just not going to work in this society. 
instead of trying to train people to sit and listen to God's word being proclaimed or taught, we're going to you know, try to present it in other ways and in dramas and in you know, ways that they're used to, ways that they pay attention where there's screens and things moving and, and uh, you know, something that's more fit, you know, right? That's syncretism. That's mixing our society with Christianity. It's clear in the Bible that, that God's word is to be proclaimed. That somebody's supposed to stand up and teach us God's word. It's not just supposed to be multimedia. It's not just supposed to be on a screen. Same thing with attention spans. Oh, you can't do anything for more than five minutes in this generation. Now, obviously, it's not easy to change culture, but that's what Christ calls us to do, to be a church that's trying to change people, not just adapting to people and trying to throw a little Jesus in, but trying to help people to change and become Conform to the ways of Christ. And this is, of course, a delicate thing and it requires a lot of patience, but we can't just give in to the way of our culture. It's just American syncretism. And the Bible here condemns this mindset, in my opinion. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Here's the bottom line. There is nothing in our lives more important than walking with Christ. And that means not letting anyone or anything trip you up. And that means being alert to the fact that you have a vicious enemy who has you in his sights. You know, sometimes in a movie... Um, you'll be watching, you know, there's a person in the movie and all of a sudden what's blurry becomes clear and you see that that person is actually being viewed through, through the, uh, the eye scope, if that's the right word, of a rifle. So there's a, there's a crosshairs and you see that there's somebody who's targeting that person. And the fact is, we are all in the crosshairs, in Satan's crosshairs. He is targeting us. He wants to trip us up. And he'll do whatever he can to cause us to fall. And one of his favorite techniques is to use the people around us to influence us to walk away from Christ. And he uses our love for people or our desire to be loved by people. To get us to try to walk with them. But donkeys and oxen can't walk together or they will just trip each other. And believers must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Our salvation and our Savior are so supremely valuable that they are to be kept costs even if it means losing everything else even if it means being rejected by all of our friends even if it means being abused and ridiculed and made fun of it doesn't matter 
it's still much better to have Christ and be hated by everybody else than to be loved by the world and hated by Christ. Again, it is fitting that we conclude by coming to the Lord's Supper where we in, with our actions partake of Christ and take him to be our own. And so I invite you this morning that if you grasp how deeply you need Jesus Christ and if your heart is open to him and you want him for yourself even if it means walking away from the, the favor of people around you I call you and invite you to partake of the feast of himself that Christ has provided But on the other hand, if you aren't so sure, if you aren't ready to say no to the world in order to have Christ, I urge you, based on the word of God, to refrain from the sacrament. If you do it in an unworthy manner, eat it in an unworthy manner, you will be eating judgment upon yourself. That's what God's word says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give praise to you that you have fed us of your own Son. For he is the true food and the true drink. And we pray now, Lord, that as we come to the sacrament, that we would be with eagerness taking him and feeding upon him who is our strength and our life and if Lord we can't feed upon Christ there is no nothing that can keep us alive we pray that you'd be at, the, at work in the hearts of every person here O Lord whether you need to whisper to us or scream at us, we pray that you'd speak in a way that we can hear and that you'd give us open ears. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.